0: Well, this morning, I would invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Luke's Gospel, chapter 2. Luke, chapter 2. We will be reading verses 8 through 11, but looking primarily at verses 9 through 11 this morning as I speak to you about good tidings of great joy. Luke 2, beginning in verse 8, And in the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. And the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy which shall be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Sadly, the glorious truth about Christ's birth in Bethlehem has been so misrepresented and corrupted by paganism and materialism. That today, especially in our culture, it bears virtually no resemblance to what we just read. Christmas is shrouded in superstition today. And as we look at the history of Christmas, and I'm going to give that briefly to you, we see that the old English word for Christmas was first found in 1038. Christus Mice, the mass of Christ. Christ, it meant, and the Latin was Dies natalis, which we get the French Noel. We don't really even know the date when Christ was born, not the month, not the day, not even really the year, we're not real sure, but in the middle of the fourth century, during the great world empire of Rome under Constantine, the Bishop of Jerusalem wrote to the Bishop of Rome and asked him to determine the date of Christ's birth. Well, he didn't know, but he thought that maybe it was December 25. By the end of the fourth century, this was the accepted date of Christ's birth by the church. And no doubt the bishop chose that date because it fit well within the festivities of the pagans during that time of the year. December was the time of the winter solstice and it was the time when everything was a bit cold and a bit dark. And they were looking forward to the spring coming when the crops would once again grow the fruit of the harvest. And so this was a time of celebration, a time of feasting, a time of partying. They would, even in those days, adorn their houses with evergreens since, after all, all of the leaves of the deciduous trees were gone. And so perhaps the bishop thought that it would be nice to somehow insert the birth of Christ during this time of festivity and hopefully cause people to think a bit about spiritual things. It's interesting as we look at history, we see that the Romans also included during this celebration time in December, various orgies and feastings. It was a time called Saturnalia, named after Saturn, the god of agriculture, the time when they would thank him for the crops and anticipate the crops of the next year. This was a time, by the way, in which they would give gifts to one another, usually small pagan uh, idols of some of their deities, along with uh, the giving of evergreen branches to hang around their homes. They would also use candles and various kinds of ornaments placed on uh, on these particular evergreens. And, of course, you can see the beginnings of our Christmas decorations even back then. The barbaric Norsemen called this time Yule, which was a Scandinavian term that described the winter solstice. And later on, even when they had a nativity scene, they thought not so much of Mary, Joseph and Jesus as they did Mother Nature, Father Time and the baby Sun God. And of course, all of that was rooted in Nordic divination and Celtic fertility rites, as well as what was called Roman Mithraism. Uh, That was an ancient mystery religion of the Romans. Mithras was the Persian god of light and wisdom. And they even believed that he was born with a sword in his hand. And especially the soldiers worshipped him and so on. The Druids in England venerated mistletoe. In fact, history tells us that the chief priest of the Druids would go with A large group of fellow worshippers and he would climb a sacred oak tree and he would cut down some mistletoe with a golden sickle. And this, of course, was to be caught by a cloth on the ground to avoid defilement by the earth. And even two white oxen were sacrificed during this time and mistletoe was given to folks. To be hung in their homes and this mistletoe to them symbolized peace and reconciliation and when an enemy in particular would cross underneath one of these pieces of mistletoe they were required to embrace that enemy and of course you can see how that gradually morphed into our kissing our sweetheart when they walk under the mistletoe of course none of this is even remotely biblical but I want you to see where some of it comes from. Many years later, Martin Luther brought a tree into his house and placed candles upon it, and he thought that that really symbolized the starry night of Christ's birth. And, of course, there are legends that abound about St. Nicholas, Santa Claus. Some say that he was born on the southern coast of Turkey, a devout Christian who helped the poor, he believed, Jesus' words to be literal, that you need to sell all that you have and give to the poor. And so this saint was venerated by a lot of people in that day, and eventually he became St. Nicholas. Others believe, especially those in Holland, that there was a favorite saint that they had called St. Nicholas. He was a white bearded bishop of Asia Minor who was believed to have appeared around December 6th riding a white horse and leaving gifts for good children on the porch of a home. And for bad children, he would leave switches for the parents to use on the seat of learning. And they also believed that, uh, as the myths would go, that he would drop coins down the chimney. And sometimes, in order to catch these coins before they went into the fire, they would hang some stockings. So hopefully they would be able to catch some of the loot that this good saint would bring. The first Christmas card was designed by a British narrative painter and a royal academician named John Horsley. And it was first printed in London in 1843 at the request of Sir Henry Cole, who was the owner of an art shop. And if you look at that original card, you will see some very merry drinking scenes upon it. Well, as Christians, we are sickened by the sacrilege and superstition now associated with our Savior's birth, and we especially disdain the association with the Roman Catholic Mass. Indeed, the entire Roman Catholic system is leprous with idolatry. It is rotten to the core, and we see that especially in the Mass, which is a a blasphemous and abhorrent ritual that perpetually sacrifices Christ as if His atoning work remains unfinished. As if we remain in our sin, we remain in our guilt, and we remain in perpetual condemnation. And therefore, we need to sacrifice Christ week after week after week. So, this holiday is contaminated with all manner of wickedness, and some Christians are so offended with it that they choose not to do anything at all with it. They ignore it completely, refuse to celebrate anything that has anything to do with Christmas. But I think differently. My thinking is, let's use the season and the day to exalt the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a most worthy celebration on any day. And we do not want to allow, in my mind, the superstitions of sinful men to rob us of that joy. Let us, like Judo, take the momentum and the weight of men's sinful idolatry and use it to our advantage to point them to Jesus. So in my discourse this morning, by God's grace, I will endeavor to help you grasp the glorious meaning of the angelic announcement and specifically focus on the three titles given to Jesus, Savior, Christ and Lord. So this morning we will first of all, look at the terror of divine glory. Secondly, the tidings of great joy. And thirdly, the titles of Jesus Christ. So now let's turn our attention to the inspired words of this first evangelist. As we notice first, the terror of divine glory in verse nine. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terribly frightened. We know in many passages of Scripture that the angels worship the Lord in great glory. In fact, Nehemiah tells us in chapter 9, verse 6, the host of heaven worships the Lord. Of course, they were created by God to worship him, to do his bidding as ministering spirits, but also to communicate his will and even to execute his judgments. But here, an angel suddenly appears and he is enveloped in the brilliant light of the Shekinah glory of God, which always symbolized in the Bible, the presence of God. And the the angel here announces that God has come to earth. God is now coming to you. Emmanuel, God is with us. Now, this was a very important Old Testament concept. We know that God repeatedly promised that his presence would guarantee the fulfillment of his covenantal blessings to his people. And this this presence was often manifested in the light of of his Shekinah, the presence of his glory, this brilliant, radiant light. Now, the presence of God was housed within the tabernacle and later the temple. We know, in fact, that the Hebrew term for tabernacle, Mishkan, is derived from the root word Shekan, which means to dwell or to rest or to abide. So from Shekan came the term Shekinah, denoting the glorious presence of God. You can look back in the Bible and you can see, for example, the presence of God, this glorious Shekinah in Exodus 13, when it was a pillar of cloud by day and a fire by night to lead the children of Israel. Um, we can also look at Exodus 33. Remember when Moses needed assurance on the Mount, he said, God, show me your glory. And the Lord showed him his glorious light, the Shekinah in Exodus 40. We can see the glory cloud descending and filling up the tabernacle. And later on in first Kings eight, it did the same thing when it came into the Holy of Holies in Solomon's temple. So throughout the Old Testament. The mysterious light of God's presence, his glorious Shekinah, was often housed in the tabernacle and later on the temple. But now you must understand that the Shekinah of his presence is going to be housed among men. It is coming to earth. It is Emmanuel, God with us. In fact, in John 1:14 we read that the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So is it any wonder that the angelic announcement would include a dazzling display of the ineffable glory of the living God who came to tabernacle amongst us to be our Savior and our Lord? I might also add that in Ezekiel chapter 10 through I should say chapter eight through verse or through chapter 10, we have a description of the hideous corruption of the Israelites idolatry that really characterized the people. And there you can read of how the Shekinah leaves the temple and it gradually departs. It rises from between the cherub over the mercy seat and the Holy of Holies, and it hovers over the threshold of the temple court. And then as you read the text, it gradually moves again and pauses over the east gate of Jerusalem of the Lord's house. And, and that, by the way, will be the same gate from which the Savior departed, will be the same gate that he was rejected and someday will return when he comes again. And in Ezekiel chapter 11 and verse 23, we read that the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood over the mountain which is east of the city, which was the Mount of Olives. And again, it's fascinating to note that the precise sequence of the departure of the glorious presence will be reversed when the Lord Jesus Christ returns once again in power and in great glory. Now, after roughly 500 years, with no sign of the presence of God, No glory, no angels, because of the sin of the people. Suddenly, the celestial brilliance of the divine presence returns to the shepherds that we believe were caring for the sacrificial sheep on a hillside in Bethlehem. In verse 11, therefore, we have an amazing illustration of the grace of God. The good news of a Savior that has been Born is first announced to the lowliest of that culture. And notice he says that he has been born for you. Now, some might hear that and they say, "Ah, but I am just I am just a nobody. I I am worthless. I, I am sinful. My life is filled with all manner of wickedness. I have nothing to offer God. I'm undeserving of his mercy and his grace. Ah, but dear friend, if that is your heart, you must know that God does know you and God does love you. Your attitude of being spiritually destitute and broken betrays it. For indeed, the Lord Jesus said in Matthew 5, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Never is a man closer to grace, dear friends, than when he is quite certain he does not deserve it. Yes, God knows you. Christ was born for you. And in his infinite love, he knew you before time began. You were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. We are told in 1 Peter 1, so therefore you have a Savior. You have a Savior. You personally have a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So he has come to exalt the lowly. The long-awaited savior prophesied and prefigured in the Old Testament has now come, the one that was pictured by by millions of animals that were sacrificed that could never ultimately forgive sin. Now Jesus has come, the light of the world, the lamb of God, coming to deliver men from the darkness. And put them into the light. In 2 Corinthians 4, 6, the Apostle Paul tells us that Christ has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in what? In the face of Christ. So yes, sin separated man from the holy presence of God, but God in his infinite love and mercy continued to seek and to save. And he comes once again in his unfailing love to save sinners. And in him there is forgiveness of sins and the righteousness of God. Now, naturally, the shepherd's response was one of sheer terror. I can certainly understand that a little bit. I don't know if you've ever seen... The Northern Lights, but I have seen them in the middle of the night in Alaska and in the Arctic Circle, different places where i 've been, and just seeing the Northern lights are enough to raise the hair on your back and cause goosebumps, not goose gumps, but goosebumps to come up all over your body it 's an amazing thing now. can you imagine that multiplied probably a million fold? And suddenly you're enveloped with the glory of God. Naturally, they were terribly frightened. I mean, that is the proper response of anyone who stands in the presence of divine glory. I think in Isaiah 6, remember when Isaiah saw the glory of God, he said, woe is me, I am disintegrating. You will remember that Ezekiel in chapter 1 saw the brightness of his glory and he was so overwhelmed that he, that he fell on his face and and utter horror. You will remember that Peter, James, and John saw, saw the glory of Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration when the Lord peeled back His skin and allowed them to see that Shekinah blaze forth from His body and emanate around them. And they were likewise terrified. You know what happened when Saul saw it on the road to Damascus and was blinded. And we know also in Revelation 1:17, in John's vision, he sees the glory of God and he falls on his face as a dead man. Now, although the glorious Shekinah of his presence now awaits his revealing in his second coming, and while there are no angelic manifestations, nor are there any divine revelations in this dispensation, I might as a footnote add, dear friends, there are no dreams and visions of Jesus now coming and personally appearing to people as you hear so often on certain news stations and Christian Television. There is no Holy Spirit speaking directly to people and giving them new revelation. The canon is closed. It is sufficient as it is. Nevertheless, you must understand that the glory of God is still being revealed in His Word and should continue to cause us all to tremble. In fact, in Isaiah 66, verse 2, God says, To this one I will look. To him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. And later in verse five, he says, hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. You see, God is constantly looking for those who will take his word seriously and see the glory of Christ revealed in his word. Because indeed, the Lord Jesus, the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us and we beheld the glory of that word that we can now see and hear as we read it. In fact, Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1.23 that his revealed word is living and enduring and has caused us to be born again. And the Lord Jesus Christ, the very embodiment of the word, will someday appear again in unimaginable glory And we're told in Revelation chapter 19 that when he does in verse 13, it says his name will be called the word of God. So the divine terror of divine glory is quickly and supernaturally calmed in verses 10 and 11. The angel said to them, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of of a great joy, which shall be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And here, dear friends, we see our second emphasis this morning, and that is the tidings of great joy. Now, typically, when you think about it, the world knows nothing of genuine, lasting joy. Most people find joy only in the fleeting pleasures of sin. Whereas the Christian is most miserable in sin and finds his joy only in living for the glory of God. In fact, finding joy in sin is really a mark of the damned, while finding misery in sin is a mark of the redeemed. Now, because of sin, you must remember that man has been separated from a holy God and therefore suffers through an existence of groaning in a fallen world. Nothing is ever quite right, and if it is, it's not right for very long. And of course, the worst of which a non-believer can experience is a mere trifling of the eternal torment that awaits them should they fail to repent. But the good news of the gospel is that in the incarnation of Christ... God has made a way of reconciliation. No longer must we be separated from the glory of God because of our sin. Christ has bridged that gap. And here, God approaches man not as judge, but as father. You see, this is the good news, the glad tidings. He's not coming in wrath, but in mercy. As a father would stoop down and and pick up a child from a flame, so too now the Heavenly Father descends in the majesty of His angelic messenger to snatch His children from the flames of everlasting torment. He says, fear not. And I believe this is an indication that these shepherds were believers, that they were righteous Jews. You see, this is more good, more than good news. It is good news of great joy. And naturally, the ones that need not to fear are those who have been reconciled to God. And he says, behold, I bring good tidings. He's not bringing judgment. This is good news. God is merciful. He is long-suffering. He is filled with loving kindness. And in essence, what he is saying is God has come now and provided forgiveness for all who have offended the holiness of his law. So those who place their trust in Christ now suddenly find them at peace with God. The war is over. In fact, John the Baptist said in John 3.36, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. And certainly those who are apart from Christ, they never see life. What they live is a life that is woefully deficient from the joys that could be theirs if they knew Christ. And certainly they will never experience eternal life in the glorious presence of God our Savior. So Jesus has come now to seek and to save those who are lost in their sins. He is coming to live a perfect life. So that his perfect life could be credited to our account. That is the great doctrine of justification. So the Redeemer has come. Our substitute has come. This is the good news. The work of redemption, as I mentioned last week, demanded a trianthropon a God-man. For he alone could atone for our sins, because atonement, you will recall, involves two things. It requires satisfaction, satisfaction for the offended holiness of God, that could only be accomplished by an acceptable substitution for the guilty party. As I have said before, Christmas is all about satisfaction and substitution. Those two words are Key to understanding Christmas, and I hope they will become a part of your vocabulary because satisfaction and substitution equals atonement, and that's what the incarnation is all about. So this is good news to all who believe you. good news. We get our word evangelized from that. It's just a transliteration of the Greek word. There's no English word evangelized. We've just we've just taken that from the Greek word. So this is good news of a great joy, which shall be for all the people, to all the people here specifically a reference to Israel. The people, the laos in the original language, you get our word laity from that, but his salvation to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. Now, you must remember that from the beginning, Israel was to be a witness nation, but forgiveness would never be theirs exclusively. But we would be also made available to all who believe. So the incarnation is ultimately the fulfillment now of the new covenant. The new covenant is being delivered and is soon going to be ratified or sealed by the very blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Abrahamic and Davidic covenants are now being fulfilled. And folks, therefore, we can say hallelujah. God has made good on his promise. He has made good on all of his promises, and indeed, he will continue to do so, and in that we rejoice. So truly, this is good news of a great joy which shall be for all the people. And as I think about it, wherever the gospel is preached, sinners are going to be converted, they will be transformed, and families will be changed, communities will be changed. Whole regions, even nations will be changed. The influence of the gospel is truly salt and it is light. And what does salt do? It preserves. It prevents decay. Think what this world would be like if suddenly all of the Christians are removed, as they will be someday in the great snatching away of the church in the rapture. But not only are we salt, but we are light. For light exposes corruption and it also produces life. That great preacher of yesteryear, Charles Spurgeon, offers some excellent insights in this regard. He says, and I quote, there is no land beneath the sun where there is an open Bible and a preached gospel where a tyrant long can hold his place. It matters not who he be, whether pope or king. Let the pulpit be used properly for the preaching of Christ crucified. Let the Bible be opened to be read by all men, and no tyrant can long rule in peace. He goes on to say, there is joy to all mankind where Christ comes. The religion of Jesus makes men think, and to make men think is always dangerous to a despot's power, The religion of Jesus Christ sets a man free from superstition. When he believes in Jesus, what cares he for papal excommunications or whether priests give or withhold their absolution? The man no longer cringes and bows down. He is no more willing, like a beast, to be led by the nose. But, learning to think for himself and becoming a man, he disdains the childish fears which once held him in slavery. If men receive Christ, there will be no more oppression. Slavery must go down where Christianity rules. It is joy to all nations that Christ is born, the Prince of Peace, the King who rules in righteousness. End quote. Oh, dear friends, what joy there is in Christ. And those of you within the sound of my voice who who grope around in the wretchedness of the world to find your heaven. You must hear that in the gospel I bring you good news of great joy. So we have seen the terror of divine glory and the tidings of great joy. But the reason for such joy can be found in our third focus this morning, and that is in the titles of Jesus Christ. Now, in verse 11, we have a threefold description of Jesus. Three titles that contain an infinite reservoir of good news of great joy, which shall be for all the people. Notice he says, For today in the city of David there has been born for you a savior. A Savior. The term sotir is used here in the original language. It means to make safe, to deliver, to preserve. And indeed, the Lord Jesus now, as our Savior, has come to do just that. Now, folks, let that sink into your mind. He has come to deliver us, to save us, to preserve us. John the Baptist said of Jesus in John 29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You see, Jesus came to be the final sacrifice. In Luke 19.10, Jesus described Himself as the Son of Man who has come to seek and to save that which was lost. In fact, in John 4.42, the Samaritans who believed in Him declared Jesus to be the Savior of the world. So friends, this is the long-awaited Messiah. This is the Son of David. This is the Son of Abraham fulfilling the Abrahamic covenant. This is the one who will eventually bring great blessing to the nation Israel and fulfill the Davidic covenant in Second Samuel 7. Where there is the promise of a glorious earthly kingdom and an everlasting kingdom. But first he has come to be a savior. And he has come to therefore atone for their sin. Now. The righteous Jews that were aware of this and in this case, particularly in this scene, the shepherds and Joseph and Mary, they were all looking for the fulfillment of the new covenant promises. They were looking for a savior who who would be judged on their behalf so that they could be reconciled to God and be filled with his spirit. They were somehow looking for a perfect lamb that was concealed in all of the mystery Of the rituals and the symbolisms and the sacrifices. A lamb that had to be slain that would someday put an end to sacrifice. A lamb whose blood alone could wash away their sin and make them white as snow. For he alone could be the propitiation for their sins. Now while they may not have understood all of this completely. They were about to understand it much more fully. In fact, in 1 John 4:14, 4, John tells us that we've beheld and bear witness that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Now, I want to digress for a moment and remind you that, folks, He has come to be a Savior, not a Santa Claus. So many people see Him as this benevolent butler that responds to our snaps and gives us all of the goodies that we think we deserve. You know, many people today know nothing of the gospel. They really know nothing of what I am preaching to you this morning. And sadly, there are many people that fill up churches that know nothing of the gospel of the good news. They think it's all about having peace on earth and let's live like Jesus and let's just all get along and sing Kumbaya. For many people, they think That Jesus came to save them, not from their sins, but from life dominating habits that destroy their health. Kind of the AA philosophy, the higher power that you've got to you've got to depend upon to be able to conquer your addictions to alcohol or drugs or my pornography, eating disorders, tobacco on and on it goes. And some people think, well, we are to come to Jesus because when we do, He is going to fix my poor self-esteem. Come to Jesus so that He can repair your disintegrating marriage. Come to Jesus so He can revamp your failing career. Come to Jesus so He can restore your declining bank account. Bottom line, come to Jesus and He's going to put An end to your lackluster, monotonous, boring, unfulfilling, purposeless life. Others see Jesus then as this ultimate Santa Claus. Just give Him your list. Tell Him what you want. And He'll give it to you as long as you've been nice and not naughty. Name it and claim it. Blab it and grab it. And on and on it goes. And therefore, because of these misconceptions, and frankly, because of these demonic lies that have filled evangelical pulpits, many times conversion experiences go something like this. God, my life is a wreck. And if you're out there, whoever you are, I really need you now. So I'm going to ask you to come into my life and to help me with all of my hurt and my confusion. Amen. And then people are quick to say, oh, welcome to the family of God. Now you're a Christian. The invitation would go something like this. Yes, come to Jesus. He loves you just the way you are. You don't have to change a thing about yourself. And people do that and many times they will admit, I don't know anything about the Bible. I don't know anything about God. I don't know anything about the gospel. All I know is I need help and God, if you're out there, help me. And now I've decided to become a Christian. Dear friends, please hear me. That person does not know the Lord Jesus Christ because that person does not understand the gospel because that the gospel Is the very core fundamental truth that man is sinful, separated from a holy God, and he needs the Savior who is Christ the Lord. In fact, it is hard to come to Christ. Do you realize that? Jesus says, if you want to come after me, you've got to deny yourself. You've got to that literally means you've got to renounce yourself. You've got to not want to have anything to do with your old self. If you want to come to Christ, you've got to repent. You've got to turn and walk in a different direction because you see the hideous sin in the way that you've been living. In fact, the Lord Jesus said himself in Luke 13, 24, strive to enter by the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. What does that mean? Strive. Agonistomai. We we get our word uh, uh, to agonize from that. It means to... To to engage in a life and death struggle, it means to strain with every fiber of your being. And that's what he's saying. You must strain to enter in by the narrow door. The narrow door of repentance and self-denial and humility and brokenness of heart over sin. Why such a struggle? Because we hate to do those things. That is contrary to our sinful nature. We absolutely despise self-denial. We abhor repentance. We resent being considered so sinful that we are in a desperate need for a Savior. A need that we cannot do anything about save cry out for mercy. Folks, the truth is, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, then you will be saved. For the heart, with the heart, Romans 10 10 tells us, the man believes resulting in righteousness and with the mouth he confesses resulting in salvation. Now, certainly, the gospel will have a transforming effect on your life. We're made new creatures in Christ. But friends, all of that is secondary. The primary... The theme of the gospel is salvation from the wrath of a holy God. That is a universal problem that we all have. So indeed, he will save his people from their sins. All of those who place their faith in Christ as Savior, not as Santa Claus. So Jesus comes as Savior. Now it's fascinating to think. And I want to give you an insight here to perhaps underscore this theme of Jesus being our Savior. In, in Luke chapter 2, verse 8, it says uh, that in this same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. So what we have here is nighttime, obviously. And the fact that the shepherds are out watching the flock tells us that it was probably a full moon. Otherwise, they would... They would typically would house the sheep in some type of a corral to protect them from thieves and from predators. And we know that where they're at here is about six miles, five or six miles from Jerusalem. And according to the rabbinic rules that we can read in the Mishnah, which, by the way, was a clarification of the Jewish law. And it needed lots of clarification because they were always coming up with things. According to the rabbinic rules, any animal found between Jerusalem and a certain spot in Bethlehem was subject to be used as a sacrificial animal. However, the rabbis also made another rule that if they ran out of animals, especially during the time of the Passover, and you will recall that there may have been as many as 250,000 animals slain during Passover, That if they ran out of any animals, they could go to this particular region and take as many as they needed. So, we don't want to start a new denomination with this. This is a bit conjecture, but I think it has some basis in historical fact. It's fascinating to think that this magnificent angelic creature is now dispatched from the third heaven by the living God in the brilliance of the divine Shekinah to proclaim the good news of the Lamb of God to these lowly shepherds who were probably caring for sheep that were to be sacrificed in the temple. So Emmanuel comes, my friends. He comes as God with us. He is not coming now in... Fury As he did in the plagues of Pharaoh, he is not coming in wrath as he did with Sodom and Gomorrah. He is not coming in the unapproachable holiness of Sinai when the mountain shook by the thunder of his voice in the giving of the law. He is not coming now with nostrils flared in anger as he did when he slew the 185,000 Assyrians marching for Sennacherib on Jerusalem. But he's coming as a gentle baby in a manger. A tender Savior to deliver men from the penalty of sin. You see why it's such good news? Not only is he Savior, but we are also told that he is Christ. Now friends, this is a title. It is not a name. It is a title. Christ, Christos in Greek, it means anointed. You see, Jesus was God's anointed one. He was therefore commissioned by the Father to be prophet, priest, and king. You see, the Messianic expectations ran high in Jesus' day. They were looking for him to come, especially with all of the oppression. In fact, we can see it in the Samaritan woman's response to Jesus in John 4.25. She said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. So even the Samaritans, they, they, they knew. They were looking for him. So indeed, as Messiah, Jesus is the Savior of the world in his prophetic, in his regal, and even in his sacerdotal duties as prophet Priest and king now, in the ancient days, prophets and kings and, and priests were anointed with oil when they were installed into their respective offices in luke four eighteen for example, Jesus quotes isaiah isaiah's prophecy in isaiah sixty one one and there he proves that he was indeed the anointed to be the prophet of salvation. There we read that the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. To free those who are oppressed and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Now, friends, understand that during the days of the Old Testament, Prophets were anointed with oil, signifying that the wisdom that they had and their ability to foretell the future was indeed inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. And priests also were anointed with oil, signifying the divine appointment and qualification that they had to be able to perform the sacerdotal or the priestly responsibilities by the power of the spirit of grace and holiness to perform all of those duties that would be acceptable to God. And likewise, kings were anointed with oil, signifying the divine enablement that God had given them and therefore the inspiration that they had to be able to to rule and to reign on behalf of God. But friends, never has a man, a single man, held all three offices. For indeed, he alone was the anointed one. You see, the Lord Jesus was prophet, anointed by God to preach the gospel and instruct men in the way of truth, able to say, Thus saith the Lord, I say unto you, also as priest who alone could offer up sacrifice and atone for sins, and also as king who alone could reign in the hearts of men and sovereignly rule over his entire universe, as King of kings and Lord of lords. And that brings us to the third title. He is not only Savior, who is the Christ, but he is also the Lord. Kurios in Greek, translated Lord. By the way, this signifies the Hebrew word Yahweh, which is we would write it Y-H-W-H, often called the Tetragrammaton, the four letters. And as we trace this back in the Old Testament, and even in the understanding of the Greek and the New, we see that this term refers to the preexistent, the self-existent, eternal God. So folks, Jesus, therefore, is the preexistent, self-existent, eternal God. This is contrary to what the cults would have us believe. You see, the Mormons do not believe this. That's why they are a cult. That's why they are not Christians. The Jehovah's Witnesses do not believe this. This is why they are not Christians. Jesus is Lord literally means Jesus is God. Isaiah prophesied this in Isaiah 9.6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, And the government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor. And what comes next? Mighty God, God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. By the way, the term Kyrios in the original language also denotes superior and supreme power and absolute legitimate power over something and Indeed, we know that the Lord Jesus rules supreme over His entire universe. So, my friends, let us never forget that the God whom we have offended loved us with such an infinite love that He descended to this earth to forgive us of our sins and to pay the penalty for our sins. Folks, there can be no greater, no more joyous news. No greater tidings on earth than this. And I pray that we will all adore the incarnate God and that we will trust in Him and trust in Him alone as our personal Savior and submit to Him as the Lord of our life. And for those who know and love the Lord Jesus Christ, please hear me as I close this morning. The fathomless depths of spiritual joy can only be yours when you walk in faithful obedience to your Lord Jesus. You see, no Christian will ever experience the fullness of joy which only Jesus can impart by the power of the Holy Spirit unless that Christian decisively, now hear this, decisively commits his or her life to the Lord in such a way that the Lord Jesus is Lord of all Lord of everything I do, Lord of my career, Lord of my family, Lord of my bank account, Lord of everything. So in other words, before I make any decision to do anything in my life, I must make sure that I am doing what God would have me do so that I can experience the fullness of, of joy that can be mine in Christ Jesus. So friends, unless you make Him the wellspring of your life, unless He is the delight of your soul, unless you long for communion with Him more than any other thing, unless He is your greatest desire, your joy even as a Christian will always be incomplete. So may we see the light of the glory of Christ this season once again in His church, in His people. Remember, it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. And also in His Word. And may we worship Him this season as Savior, as Christ, and as Lord. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for these eternal truths. May they bear much fruit in our hearts. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to Pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information, or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit olive tree resources.org.